another day, another dollar makes you wonder where your money went. You can scream and you can holler. Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world and the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Dictated, as almost always, once again from my personal mobile studio, as I make my way along a 50-mile-plus commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. Well, folks, had a couple days of broadcasting from the home office, and you guys may have gotten spoiled with that high-quality audio off of Audacity uh, being recorded directly to the computer. Uh, Those days are gone for a while again, and I am mobile again, which is kind of cool because it's part of what makes the uh, it's part of what makes the podcast cool in the first place. And uh, I did something a little different. I probably should have done this at like 9 o'clock in the morning instead of 9 o'clock at night. But what I did yesterday is I went on the on the forum and I said, okay, I'm going to be back in the car tomorrow, guys. And I'm going to do a podcast on one of three things. And it needs to be something that I can just kind of knock out without a lot of notes at all. Because I figured today's driving conditions were going to be terrible. And shockingly, today's driving conditions are terrible. I'll give you more on that in just a second. But I put up three topics. One was choosing a weapon for home defense. Uh, one was, let's talk about the $850 billion stimulus piece of crap uh, that Congress has just passed and said it will soon send to uh, Mr. Obama to uh, mortgage our futures with. Uh, or let's talk about making beer and wines and needs uh, and forget the misery for a while and uh, let's, let's look at that. Uh, and I ran a poll for that. I said I won't guarantee you that I'll follow the poll results, but I probably will. And guess what? Mead and wine and beer making won by a long shot. Now, there was limited participation, but I think you know, there was two dozen people the total had voted. Uh, so uh, I'm going to take that to mean that's what we should be talking about today. Give the audience what it wants. And today we're going to do a show on making beer and uh, mead. And I'll do a little bit on wine. I'm going to probably do a completely different show on wine because there's some real differences when you get into making wine. But I'm going to tell you how to make some meads today that for all intents and purposes would be wine. And they come without some of the additional steps that you have to use when you make a typical wine. So that'll be good. Uh, before I do, I want to mention a few things once again. Number one, tomorrow we are doing a listener appreciation contest giveaway. Uh, I've decided that I'm going to give away uh, this. I'm going to give away two slings tomorrow, and I'm not going to tell you the code word, obviously, but I'm going to tell you the uh, the respondent numbers that I'm going to do. Uh, I've had, like I said, a lot of people saying, "Hey, you know, I don't get to listen to your show till later in the day." Fine, uh, twenty. So that'll be for an early listener, and one hundred and thirty tomorrow are going to win. Now, 130 gives a lot of people a chance. There's like 600 people in the contest. All right, yeah, you got to be in the contest to play the game. Now, the odds that all of those 600 people are listening early are not very good. So, Dan Tanner, you got a chance to win here, bud. Uh, I promise you, you got a legitimate shot at it, uh, even if you don't listen to the thing till about six o'clock at night. So, uh, folks, you know. It's the most advanced warning I can give you on a listener appreciation contest. The other thing, again, I wanted to reiterate is the fact that in April or May, it's probably going to be April, but might be May, uh, Region 3 is doing a great big survival shindig get-together. And we're going to be doing all kinds of cool stuff out there, cooking a lot of food, having a good time, uh, doing some survival seminars. I'm going to be there. I'm going to do a basic seminar on basic systema striking, a little bit about uh, Russian uh, systema training philosophy. Now, I'm no martial arts expert, and I'm not a systema expert, but I can give you a pretty good lowdown on how to deliver these strikes. Uh, we can get together, those of you that want to, can actually experience one or two of them for yourself, and I can give you some unique ways that you can go back and work on training yourself for real world defensive uh, things, and if you happen to be a martial artist, you'll be able to take the things that I show you and incorporate them into your own art, so that should be cool. And there'll be a lot of other great things going on out there. We're going to actually 
we have power out there. I think we have a 15k generator somebody's bringing. Uh, we're going to be watching movies out in the woods. Uh, one of the movies that's already been nominated are some of the zombie flicks. And we're going to watch the all-time survival movie uh, ever created, Red Dawn. Uh, this should be a hell of a lot of fun. If there's any way you can make it, it's going to be somewhere near Birmingham, Alabama. If you can make it, please come on down. I'd love to see you meet you, shake your hand, and uh, that would be really cool. Uh, the next thing I want to say before I go into today's topic, yesterday we were forced with banning a person from the forum that we really did not want to ban from our forum. Uh, because the individual is 15 years old, we have a policy on our forum that you have to be 18 years old in order to post on our forum. And we do that for legal liability reasons. We discuss things on that forum that are of an adult nature. We discuss things from you know making ammunition to using weapons, and there is some foul language. I mean, I use it on the show when it's called for, when I'm pissed off. I don't just do it just to do it. Uh, but that goes on the forum. We let that fly. It is an adult discussion. Because of that, I cannot let minors onto the forum knowingly. So if someone comes on there, lies about their age to register, and then we discover, because of something they posted, that they're underage, i got to remove you. Now the reason I bring this up is the, the, the young man that we had to remove yesterday was 15 years old. Squared away, has his stuff together, and I hope you're listening today, because they sent you an email telling you how proud of you I was, and I really am. And I hope you continue to listen to the show, and there is no restrictions on commenting on the blog and the show notes, so you can participate that way. We also don't restrict who can read the forum, alright? So you can read all you like. Um, and I am really proud of that young man, and he was so respectful, even when we told him we were going to have to ban him. And basically we said, we'll let you have the rest of the day, and then you're going off. And he sent me a PM and said, before I get kicked off for being 15, I just want to thank you, and, and wrote me a pretty nice note. And I sent him an email back saying, look, man, I wish I didn't have to do it to you, and he said, I understand. And that's the type of kids that give me hope for my country right there. Involved, engaged, and, and pushing his parents to, hey, wake up, pay attention. And he gave me a suggestion that I do a show sometime on getting people that you know, friends, relatives, parents, brothers, sisters, and introducing them to the concept. I already did one on sharing it with your spouse, but that was very specific to spouse uh, spouses, so I'll probably do that show in the future, and hopefully that young man can introduce his parents to the Survival Podcast with that episode. But I just wanted to point out why that is, and if you're underage, please don't think uh, that we're being mean to you, or we don't respect you, or we don't wish, like hell, we could let you into that forum. But if one minor gets on that forum, and we knowingly allow it, and gets into some trouble because of information he got and misuses from that forum, I could lose everything I have. And I just can't take that risk. And I can't, and the, and the moderators that are on that forum could be culpable as well, uh, even though they're just volunteers, and I can't let them take that risk. So that's why we do that. All right, moving on. So let's talk about making some wine and some beer. Uh, I cannot give you, like, specific ingredients and in, in, in recipes and stuff like that, uh, especially today. I have to really pay attention to the road out here. Uh, I've already seen a cop wreck uh, right in front of me since I left the house, and I had to take evasive action to avoid being hit by an SUV in the parking lot where I stopped this morning to get a cup of coffee. Um, that had nothing to do with ice. That had to do with a stupid driver. So I, I'm not going to be able to, like, 5.5 pounds of this and that. I'm going to give you some general things. What I want today's show to do is I wanted to introduce you to this concept. I want you to I want to make you realize how simple this really is to do. How easy it is to get started and how no matter how advanced you want to get with brewing beer for instance, there's kind of a step path for you to slowly move up in complexity uh, and there may never be a need for you to get more complex but if you want to it can be a very easy step by step process All right. so the first thing that people think of when they hear about making beer there, there's two sides to this one is the, the rational person says yeah I bet that takes a long time to make beer 
All right, and I'm going to tell you about like a basic brown ale you can have from the day you brew it to the time it's bottled to the time you drink it. You're probably better making this a 21-day time span. Be good 14 days, and it'll be good beer, and you can drink it, and you'll enjoy it. All right. There are some beers that age, but it doesn't take forever for beer to be done. It's much faster than wine, especially when you're making ales. All right. The other side of making beer is, usually when I tell somebody I make beer, if they're kind of younger, kind of in the party crowd, so it's like, I bet it gets drunk. Well, first of all, if you drink enough of any beer, it'll get you drunk. But the beers that I used to make, I haven't made beer for a while. That's something I'm going to. That's one of my 2009 resolutions to start making beer again. Uh, but the beers I used to make, most of them, not all of them, but most of them, were no more alcoholic than the beers that you buy in the store. In fact, uh, I used to beer, brew specific batches of a beer called Brown Mild, which is a, uh, a British form of beer that was actually a lot less. It was about 3.8% alcohol, and most American beers run between uh, 45 to 5.5%. So it was actually a very light beer from a standpoint of alcohol, and it was kind of a light beer calorically, but it didn't taste like a light beer. And you might ask, why would you brew that? Well, that's it was my beer that I would drink when I was cutting grass. And I wanted to have maybe one or two beers while I cut the grass. I didn't want to get drunk, and I just wanted something refreshing, but I wanted an alcoholic adult beverage. So that's that's why I made that beer. And it was a great beer for summertime. And even in the cooler days of falls, because it was a brown beer. So I'll tell you how to make that. Um... So there's all this different variants, and you can make any kind of beer you want from very light beers, like a light American ale, light American lager, and I encourage you to start with ales first. It'll make sense when I get to the difference between the two of them, why. Uh, all the way up to some very heavy beers, barley wine ales. Okay, These are, these are beers that have the alcoholic content of like a wine. Uh, they age beautifully, and they give you the opportunity to start doing things with fruits and honeys that are just amazing. From there, you can move into making honey beer mixtures, which are just basically an ale with honey or a lager with honey. But you can start to move way toward the honey side where it's a lot less malt and barley and a lot more honey you start to move toward mead you can move into a pure mead and a pure mead is made with honey water and yeast that is all all right there's some other things you may want to do uh to get better results with your mead making than than just limit yourself to those ingredients but that's a pure mead and then once you're into the mead realm you can go to mixing things like apple juice with mead and make what's called a sizer all right you can mix uh herbs and spices with your meads and make what's called a piment. Right? You can mix uh, grapes and make a wine-honey blend called melamol. And there's all these different forms and permutations of mead. They all come out of the ale and lager making process and that's why we're going to start there. So let's start out with how hard is it to make beer? Well, there's there's three main ways that home brewers make beer. And there is what's called malt extract brewing, partial mash brewing, and full mash brewing. I'm going to talk mostly about ma- malt extract brewing. I'll just explain to you what... Uh, partial mash and mashes so that you understand how beer is actually made. We really won't get into that because it's a more complex form, and I just want to help people kind of get started today. So malt extract is available in two forms. It's available in a powder, and it's available in what looks like a very thick, heavy syrup. For all intents and purposes for making beer, they are pretty much the same. You'll probably find you like working with the dried extracts better just because it's easier to dump them into a pot of boiling water than it is to get all of the syrup from a wet extract out. The dry extract if you like to stockpile stuff is also less weighted so it will uh, store uh, you can store more of it in a smaller area. Uh, Six pounds of dry malt extract can be stored in a sealed bag and uh, will weigh you know, six pounds. The same with the syrup. It'll weigh six pounds, but it's going to have to be in some kind of a tub, and uh, it's just a lot more of a pain in the ass end, honestly, to store. If you're buying it as you use it from a home brew shop, and one of the things I'm going to tell you is, you know, we like to be do-it-yourselfers, provide everything for yourself. First thing you're going to want to do is find a good local home brew shop if there's one in your area. If there isn't, look for some good suppliers online. I'll give you some links from the show. These guys are not sponsors. They're just people. People I've bought 
lot from in the past that I know give you good quality, uh, good shipping, that type of thing. Um, so once you have your malt extract, right, and uh, you, the only other things that you need to make beer after that are water, okay, hops, and yeast. That's it. Yeast is something I'm going to tell you right now. I've seen recipes online where people use, like, bread yeast to make beer. Don't do it. Yeast is cheap. Even quality homebrew yeast is cheap. All right. Hops. You may be wondering where you get hops. You get them from a homebrew store. Until maybe you start growing your own. And, uh, you know, next time I do a show about different weird stuff to grow, I'll talk about growing hops. Hops are very easy to grow in just about any part of the United States. Uh, so you, you get hops there. So the basic philosophy, and I'll talk a little bit about some of these different elements in a second, but here's how you make a basic batch of beer. You bring uh, about two gallons of water to a boil, all right? You add between five and eight pounds of malt extract to it, and you boil that. And once you have that boiling, you'll add your bittering hops, all right. Now, the reason you add hops to beer is exactly for that, for a bittering function. There's, there's two acids in hops, and it's alpha acid that provides the bittering units. And there's a mathematical formula to calculate it. Usually the recipe you're following will say uh, add one and a half ounces of tetanang bittering hops. All right. So you throw your bittering hops in. They need to boil for a period of time to allow the alpha acids to be released and the beta acids to be released and bitter your wort. And the reason you do that is because malt is sweet even once fermented. So a beer without hops in it will be overly sweet, and a beer with the right amount of hops in it will be balanced. All right. So once that's done, if you want to have... Now, the thing is, when you boil hops, you just absolutely obliterate the flavor contribution of them. So if you want to add hops for flavoring, you add a little bit more hops and a lot of recipes. Again, I'll tell you exactly how much, exactly how long, but you're going to only want to add your flavor hops for maybe the last 10 minutes, and that's really, in my opinion, a little bit too long. Once you cease the boil and begin to allow that wort to chill, all right, you throw in a little bit more hops if you want to have what's called an aroma hop character to your beer, where it can actually be smelled, not just taste. Now, it's up to you how much hops you want in your beer, how bitter you want your beer, how much aroma, things like that. If you are a person that generally drinks beers like Budweiser, go real easy on the hops. Start with lighter beers. All right, it's real easy to overdo them. Uh, the other thing about hops is when you buy your hops, it'll say that the acid count is 4.4% or 5.5%. When you read your recipe for making home beer, it'll tell you how many bittering units to add. So if it says to use 4.4 alpha acid Fugels hops, and you can't get Fugels hops, and you decide to substitute 5% tetanang hops, you can plug the numbers into this little formula. It'll tell you how to adjust up or down. A little bit more on hops. When you buy your hops from a store, there's uh, there's three main ways that you can get them. Whole cone flour uh, hops, which is what I actually do prefer, but they have a lot reduced storage time. And I just keep my hops in the freezer, folks, and that helps all of them store longer. But cone flours will uh, have a little bit less storage time. There's what's called, uh, there's, there's basically large pellets and small pellets. Large pellets are basically cones, entire cones. Uh, hop cones, which are like a little flower that grows on a hop vine, pressed into a pretty big pellet. It looks kind of like a small range cube, if you're familiar with range cubes. And then there are um, what you call just pure pellets, which look like little rabbit pellets, like you feed a rabbit. Uh, those pellets are actually shredded hops. They will give you a lot more bang for the buck. You'll generally see a little bit higher acid count because it's their net acid output. And obviously when they're shredded up in those little pieces and they come out into your wort, uh, they're going to have a greater effect as far as their ability to release their acids than a whole flower. So those are your three forms of hops. Use whatever you like. As long as you stick to the right bittering units, you'll get the results that your recipe is calling for. So we've, we've done that. We've kind of given you a little bit of overview on hops. Yeast, there's two main forms of brewing yeast available. There's dry and there's wet. Most of the wet yeast costs more money. 
They're probably worth the difference. They generally perform better. But many of the basic ale, dry ale, brewing yeast work very, very well. And if you're just trying to make a basic American ale, a basic English ale, a basic pale ale, a basic light ale, they're more than sufficient, very inexpensive. What you want to do with those, though, is you want to get a little bit of warm water. When I say warm, I'm talking about, oh, 80 degree water. Add a little bit of uh, malt extract to just a very little bit. Draw, and you want to. I'll talk about sanitization uh, at the end. But everything needs to be sanitized as you're doing this. And you drop your yeast into uh, this container with a little bit of warm water and uh, malt extract and cover it. That'll get it started, and it'll have a, be- a kind of a head start when you drop it into this thick wort. Now, as you notice, like I said you start out with maybe two gallons of water. You can use more. You can use less. The whole point point is once you're done boiling it and you've done all you want to do with your hops, one thing I should throw in about hops, if you just throw the hops, the pellets that are shredded up into your wort, you'll have tiny little pieces of hops all through your beer. You won't be able to get it out. Now that sucks. So that you take, at least, and if you go to a home brew shop, they have them pre-set up. Basically, it's a piece of cheesecloth. You put your hops in there, tie it up, and throw it into your uh, brew kettle. So now you need to transfer that hot wort into what's called a carboy or a plastic fermenter, depending on what you're using. I prefer to use glass carboys. Many people have had great results um, using uh, plastic fermenters as well. I've tried it. It's worked well for me. Um, hold on, folks. I'm going to pause just a second. got a treacherous area here. And uh, so you transfer your hot wort. And obviously, if it's still screaming hot, you can't go right into glass with it because it could shatter. But my whole point here is once you do get the transfer done, you're adding about three gallons of pure cold water to your wort. This will begin to drop the temperature. This is a big advantage for the extract brewer. If you're doing a mash brew, you're going to have to have, if you want to make five gallons of beer, you have to have a a brewing kettle that can hold, let's say, six gallons or seven gallons, seven and a half gallons really of wort, because some of it's going to boil off. You're going to have to top it up. And obviously, you don't want to fill it to the edge. You want headroom, right? So... You can use a much smaller kettle, and if you get a big, one of those big, huge aluminum stockpots you can get from most retailers, that'll work well for your first brewing kettle. So now you've got your boiled wort, which is what you call uh, beer before it becomes beer. It's just barley and uh, water and, it, and malt, and it's syrupy, and it's going to smell in a way that if you're a man, you'll probably love, and your wife will probably hate. I'll tell you that right now. So if you have one of those outside propane things, you may want to do your boiling outside. Much more efficient use of heat anyway. So you get this stuff into your fermenter. You have to allow it to cool below 90 degrees, and... Uh, I got to where I could kind of put my hand on the side of the fermenter and go, yeah, it's cool enough now. You throw your yeast in, and then on the top of your fermenter, you install something called an airlock. And this looks like one of these little scientist things when you were kids and you'd watch like a mad scientist in his lab or whatever, and you fill that with water. And what that does is is the yeast ferments and releases CO2 gas. CO2 gas goes through the airlock and bubbles out the other side. All right, because the water's there, no bacteria can get into your fermenter. Your fermentation process will take anywhere between five days for a very light uh, ale with a fast-acting yeast to maybe several months with a slow-acting cold lager yeast. Once that's done, you rack. It's called racking. You rack your your beer maybe to a second fermenter. Some people bottle straight. I like to go to a second fermenter. Uh, put an airlock back on. Give it a couple more days. Allow it to settle out again. You get a lot more clear results. When you're ready to bottle, you add. You generally, for a five-gallon batch of beer, and I never make less than five gallons, uh, half a cup of corn sugar uh, to water. You boil that to make sure that it's sanitized. You dump that into your fermenter, and then you go ahead after you've dumped that into your, your, your now beer and bottle. When you bottle, there's a little wand that you can buy. These things are a couple bucks. Don't try to get by without one. And the way it works, it's got a little pressure release on it. You stick it into your bottle. Once you have your siphon running, you push down on it. Your bottle fills to the top. You let it fill straight to the top, and you pull the wand out. And that wand happens in every bottle I've ever filled, from big growlers to little, you know, uh, half bottles, leave just enough headspace, which is right about an inch of headspace, because of the, the, the beer that it displaces. Once that's done, you simply go ahead and cap all your bottles. What happens is that little bit of sugar that you added, 
it starts to kick the yeast back into effect. Your bottles are all going to get cloudy. You're going to go, oh my God, my beer is ruined. It's not ruined. That's the yeast working again. They're going to release CO2. Half a cup of corn sugar to five gallons. Don't use more. Okay? Don't use more than that. And what happens is it's just enough to carbonate your beer. After about three or four days of looking cloudy, your bottles will start to clear out. As soon as your bottles are completely clear, your beer is good to drink. Now, some beers, the heavier beers, will do a little bit better if you let them age a little bit longer. It also depends how long were they in the fermenter, how much aging has already been done, that type of thing. But pretty much they're good to drink. Something you need to know about home-brewed beer. Home-brewed beer will have yeast in the bottle. The bottom of your bottle, if you look, you'll see a little layer of yeast. Depending on how long you let it age, how many times you racked it, how clear you let it become, that layer will be very, very thin or fairly thick. That yeast will not hurt you. It's actually good for you. It will generally give an off taste to the beer that you do not want. So, the way you drink home-brewed beer is from a glass, not from the bottle. Now, you the pouring technique. Chill your beer to whatever temperature you like to drink it at. It. I like my beer cold. I'm not an Englishman. I don't drink beer at cellar temperature, which is like 50 degrees. I like my beer down in the you know high 30s. Open your beer. Tilt your glass to the side. Pour the beer very, very slowly down the side of the glass, letting it fill the glass. Make sure you have a glass to, that's big enough to hold all the beer in the bottle with a single pour. If you're doing big bottles like growlers, pour it into a pitcher and then pour your you know your friend's beer out of a pitcher. As you're pouring it, right toward the end, there'll be that last little half ounce of beer, and you'll start to see that yeast start to move down the bottle. Give it up. Stop. Quit. Don't pour that into your glass. If you want a great hangover preventive, swirl the bottom of that beer around in the bottle and just shoot it down like a shot, and you'll see why you don't want it in your beer. It doesn't taste bad. It just doesn't taste good. All right? But there's huge amounts of B12 in there. It's a great nutrient for you. All right? So that, that's it. There's your process end-to-end of brewing beer. It's not complex. If you looked at winemaking, you've probably seen all these additional steps and things like that. Uh, so, uh, and I'm going to give you a couple books. And if you buy one, you'll end up buying the other. Uh, and they'll help you with all the things I'm leaving out because I just can't cover everything here. I just want to make you comfortable with the concept of trying it for yourself and give you some of the things that I've learned along the way in doing it. And if I was talking to people that already made beer, and that was my entire audience, I would talk about some more advanced stuff and, and things like that, but I'm trying to get you kind of off the ground with this. So, so there's your process. The entire process of, of brew day, when you're boiling, if you're doing a straight extract beer, I mean, you're looking at maybe an hour and you're done. And then the beer just sits there in the fermenter for a week or two or three weeks, and it takes me generally about an hour to do all my bottling as well. Uh, moving into meads. The process of making mead is not much different, um, except you usually don't put hops in mead. I, I generally do not. Uh, but you basically boil your honey and water mixture and the, the, the amounts that are given in your recipe. Um, once that boiling process is complete, uh, you transfer your honey-water mixture into a fermenter. You add a good quality yeast. And then here's something that you really need to consider doing with your mead making. You can buy yeast nutrient mix from a homebrew store or a winemaking store. You add that to your mead, and it provides all these wonderful nutrients that help make your yeast act faster. If you make mead without a nutrient mix, it will eventually ferment out. But it takes a hell of a lot longer. And what you're waiting for with mead is for it to go completely clear. You should be able to look through uh, your glass fermentation container, your carboy, straight through it, and it might be like a honey-colored amber or whatever, but you should be able to see directly through it. There shouldn't be a bit of cloudiness to it. When that happens, mead, if you're going to drink it still, it's pretty much ready to drink. You still might want to age it or something like that, but it's ready to go. I generally rack it a couple times just to get as much of the yeast out of there as possible, and I've also learned that with mead, since it takes well, it takes quite a bit of effort for honey to be completely fermented out, even with these yeast additives, um, a lot of times you'll rack it and it looks done, and it'll cloud up for a few days, it'll start fermenting again, and you'll get it to ferment out, and you'll get a lot less residual sugar, and the best meads aren't overly sweet, uh, and until you try meat, I can't really 
tell you what it's like. It's a honey wine, but that doesn't do it justice. And just a basic water, uh, honey, yeast, mead mixture is amazing, and it's a great place to start your mead making. You can then move into things like making fruit meads. Blackberry, raspberry are both wonderful uh, things to add in mead. There's a, a mead recipe in one of the books I'm going to give you called Barshack Ginger Mead, and it's uh, got, obviously, ginger in it, but it's a fairly light mead. It doesn't have that much honey to it uh, compared to some of the heavier, higher alcohol meads, and you do the priming process at the end that I described for beer, except you use half a cup of honey, and it makes basically a sparkling ginger-flavored mead champagne, and, you know, folks, that's... uh, that's something kind of really special there. So there's your basic mead making. Now, let's talk about adding fruit. And we're going to talk about adding fruit to mead or to beer and, and some basic ways to do it. Um, I'm a big fan of blackberries and raspberries uh, as, as a type of fruit to add to beers uh, and meats and apples. Uh, but I'm going to go with the berries first. You can use strawberries. You can use any berry you want. The best thing you can do with your berries is put them in a great big bag and freeze them before you make your beer. When you freeze them, they will rupture. Okay? And when they rupture, they're going to have a lot more ability to release their juice and be attacked by the yeast when you're fermenting them. All right? And uh, there's a lot of different ways to, do, to, to put your fruit. You can you know, ferment with the fruit in and then rack off it after a couple days. You can put the fruit into cheesecloth, basically included in the word, and basically squeeze it out at the end. Uh, it's up to you. You'll find different recipes call for different things. All I can tell you is follow the recipe. But here's some combinations that you absolutely have to try. Blackberry meat. Put Cabernet Sauvignon to shame if you age it long enough. All right, blackberry stout. Use a dark malt extract, and you make a blackberry stout. Unfreaking believable. Raspberry stout, uh, folks. That's like liquid chocolate raspberry sex in a bottle. That's the only way I can describe this. You build a very high gravity, kind of an imperial stout, which is up into the strength of a wine uh, with with, a, with maybe six to eight pounds of raspberries for a five-gallon batch. Absolutely, unbelievably phenomenal. Uh, using wheat malt extract, uh, raspberry wheat and blackberry wheat are Awful, awful good. Uh, using strawberries, and just take about five to seven pounds of strawberries and add them to a basic light American ale recipe. Any American ale recipe. Um, you'll make a summer drinking beer that is just phenomenal. Go easy on your hops there. Let the sweetness of the strawberries come through with that. Those are just some ideas. The thing is that it's limited only by your imagination. There's absolutely no limit to what you can do with making beers and wines. Now I'm going to give you two books. One is called The Joy of Home Brewing. And then the other one is called the the, the new complete the new joy of homebrewing and the complete joy of homebrewing. I think of the two. I'll put links to both of these books. Again, not a sponsor, just the best books I've ever found on the subject. They're by a guy that really spearheaded the entire homebrewing revolution in America named Charlie Papazian. I'd love to sit down and drink some homebrew with this guy someday. Uh, never have had the opportunity, uh, but he seems like an amazing guy. And those two books will tell you everything you need to know, everything you need to buy. Now I'm going to give you some things that are kind of like individual t- tricks and tips that Jack has learned along the way. Number one, when you're making a mead, this is cheating. It won't be a pure thing. Uh, but it will work, and you won't care when you taste the results. Adding one pound of malt, white malt extract to your mead will make it ferment faster and come out quicker and come out cleaner and come out clearer than any yeast, uh, yeast nutrient pack that you drop in there with it. It absolutely will. It won't technically be a mead. It'll be a honey ale, which mead kind of is anyway, because you'll have barley in there. All right? You won't care. And it'll take one pound of five gallons, and there's so much nutrients in barley that you're going to get a great result. And if you use a light extract, nobody but the connoisseur would be able to tell that that's even in there. 
Anybody else drinking it's going, oh, this is a great meat. You can do that with any of your meats, including when you're adding uh, fruits and berries and stuff. Number two, apples are amazing. And I don't care if it's, you know, go get yourself some organic apple cider. Take two gallons of apple cider and uh, add that to, uh, you know, you got to heat it to make sure you kill anything in there. Or you can use something called a cadmium tablet, which is something that winemakers generally use. But you have to allow that to do its do its thing and then add it a, couple, a day or two later. Um, I just prefer to take your apple cider and use a bigger pot. And while the word is still screaming hot, add your apple cider to, directly to the hot word and then transfer the whole thing uh, to, your, uh, to your fermenter. If you do that, um, you're going to have an amazing result. And again, about two gallons of apple cider and three gallons of typical beer wort. And you follow kind of the recipe for a basic American ale. Lightly hopped, uh, light malt extract. It'll put any apple cider to shame that you could ever come up with. Another thing you can do is just Cut up about 10 pounds of, or I'd say 5 pounds of apples, and just put the sliced apples in your wort at the end and allow them to soak while the wort is not boiling but still very, very hot. And then rack the beer off the apples into your fermenter. Apple beers are just amazing. All right, so there's another one. Uh, another another thing is experiment with what's called specialty grain brewing. Remember, I talked about there is what's called mash extract brewing, uh, and then there's partial mash and, and and full mash. Right. Well, there's kind of an intermediate step, and I'm not even going to talk about mashing today uh, at all because I'm running kind of long into this podcast already. And believe it or not, folks, I've only made it about eight miles in this ice, this, you know, in fog that I'm in. Um, but when you when you make a uh, a malt extract, w- one step you can add is you get kind of a bigger piece of cheesecloth, and there's different what are called specialty malts or specialty grains, and these will add character and depth and flavor and residual sweetness to your beers uh, that you usually would only get by doing a, uh, a mash, but you don't have to mash because these grains are not going to uh, require the conversion process to come from mashing. And some of these things are like, there's a, a Grambinus honey malt that adds a wonderful toasty character. There's dark malts, uh, there's chocolate malts, there's, uh, there's just all kinds of special grains, and when you look at these recipes that are available online and in books, you'll see the different grains that they call for. Uh, adding those in a bag so that they can be easily removed uh, is a great way to kind of up the character of the beer that you're brewing. Another thing about them is, don't throw them away. Uh, they can be, you know, you take a spoon and dip in and try it, uh, you'd be surprised. It's kind of a good little porridge in itself uh, when you're done with it. Uh, but they can be used, uh, mixed in, let's say you take uh, uh, a cup of this uh, this hot grain, uh, put it aside, and when you make bread, uh, mix it into your bread, like a whole grain bread. It'll do amazing things for a loaf of bread. And that bread with a home-brewed beer and a little bit of butter on it, folks, telling you, it's absolutely amazing. If nothing else, throw it in your compost heap and compost it. You never throw anything away that's organic and plant-based if you're an organic gardener. So those things are there as well. There's a thing you need to know about. It's called peptic enzyme. Whenever you're using fruit, fruit juices, berries, it's a good idea to use peptic enzyme. Most of the recipes will call for it. What it does is it prevents the pectin in your fruit from setting, so you don't get like a jelly-like result from these fruits. Uh, If you use that, you'll have no problem using just about any fruit. And again, freezing your fruit, especially berries, is a great way to cause the cells to burst and get a much better reaction out of them. And what you'll find, folks, if you start brewing beers and meads, is that you'll start looking around and going, what can I stick in here? Some of the things I've put in beer that people would call crazy, it came out amazing, chocolate. I made a raspberry chocolate stout. Unbelievable. Unbelievable dessert beer. It wasn't sweet. Don't take, when I call it a dessert beer, don't take it the wrong way. But if, you know, you're, you're serving a full meal with multiple courses, and you're bringing out a chocolate cake type dessert at the end, and you serve every person an 8-ounce glass of chilled chocolate raspberry homebrewed stout, 
you'll take people that said they would never drink a beer, and you'll not only turn them into beer drinkers, you turn them into home brewers. Now, how applicable is all this to the survivalists? Well, what will happen if you go into making beer and eventually go into making wine, uh, a mead? You'll eventually have just about everything that you need, and the process of making wine, instead of seeing, seeming complicated, will actually begin to seem simplified. And once you can make wine, as somebody that grows fruits uh, and has access to wild fruits, you start to realize you can make wine out of anything. You look out and you go, there's dandelions in a field. I can make a dandelion wine. Huh. There's wild blackberries. I can make blackberry wine. There's an old orchard with a bunch of apple trees, and those apples aren't good for anything, but I can make an apple wine out of them. And you start to look at everything and go, can I squeeze that? Can I press that? Can I turn that into wine? Or can it be an additive for my beer and meat? And I never got big into making wine, and I'll tell you why. Because I've always made wine that was basically a form of meat. Because honey, to me, is such a better ingredient to boost the sugar content of your must, if it's wine or word if it's beer, that I can't see using sugar. So instead of making a wine by using a sugar to boost uh, my sugar count, I make a mead. And to me, meads are simplified. I have another piece of advice for you. I see a lot of recipes online that are for making one or two gallons of wine or beer or mead. Never make less than five gallons. It's too much work. It takes no more effort to make five gallons than it does to make one. You go through all this effort, you wait for all this time, and you have a one-gallon result. It just doesn't make sense. In fact, my carboys are all, or at least were all before I gave them away. Now I have to go buy new ones. Six-and-a-half-gallon carboys. They usually come in five and six-and-a-half. Buy six-and-a-halves. Just adjust your ingredients up. Make six gallons. Uh, five gallons is about two and a half cases. When you make six, you get right up to about three cases of beer. Uh, or, you know, with wine, if you're, uh, I've seen people put wine in beer bottles for smaller uh, portions, so you only open what you need at a time. Uh, mead, you can bottle mead like wine, or you can bottle mead like mead like beer uh, with bottle caps. Charlie Papazian uses bottle caps. I use bottle caps, and I bottle my mead instead of big wine bottles and 12-ounce beer bottles, simply because it's so precious to me when I start to drink it. Uh, I like to be able to bring it out, you know, one bottle, bottle, pour it all the way out, split the glass in half, and share one with somebody instead of, you know, it's, the mead's not something you're going to throw six down in a row with. Um, it's something that you savor. So those, those are some of my personal tips. A little bit on sanitization. This is a very important process. Uh, but what I want to say first, so that nobody worries, this is very important to understand. You cannot make a wine, a beer, or a mead that can kill you. You can't even make one that's going to really make you sick. No pathogen that can do damage in a human being can survive in the high alcohol and high acid content of beer, wine, and meat. It won't work. As long as it ferments, it'll kill anything that can kill you. All right. The problem is a lot of the things that can contaminate your wine must or your beer wort or your mead wort uh, will ruin it. And they will make it taste awful. And if you ever open a bottle and you didn't overprime uh, your beer and you open it, it just foams and foams and foams, it's probably ruined. That's one way that sometimes you can tell that something's gotten in there. There's a couple different ways that people uh, use san- sanitize. There is sanitizer available from a home brew shop. It works really good. If you're going to use any kind of additive, it's what I recommend. A lot of people use a very light chlorine bleach solution. I do not recommend that. And the reason I don't recommend that is if you don't completely get it rinsed 100% and there's any residual bleach left in anything, it will absolutely ruin the flavor of your beer. It'll ruin it. So I don't like, so there's a thing called Santa Bride or Santa, I don't remember what it's called, but the Stay Bride, I think. And uh, it's an excellent sanitizer. For sanitizing your bottles, I generally just did this. I rinsed them all. 
with very hot water, and then I would put them into the dishwasher, and I would run the dishwasher with no anything added to it, and I would run the heat dry cycle. And you can get just about two and a half to three cases of bottles upside down into an average dishwasher. Now, if the shit hits the fan, you have to get by without a dishwasher, fine. But as far as sanitizing your bottles, that seems to work really good. And all I do is on bottling day, I run that cycle, you know, right before I'm going to bottle, so that it'll finish right about the time I'm ready to bottle, and those bottles have always been clean. Um, you want to take your bottle caps and put them into a container of water using the sanitizer available from the home brew shop. That's the best way I know to do it, uh, and then rinse them off thoroughly. An easier way to do it, and this is what I generally do, is you count out, you know, if you're going to bottle 60 bottles, 60 bottle caps, throw 65 in there, bottle caps are cheap. Throw them into a pot of boiling water for a few minutes, uh, dump the water out, rinse them off, and they're going to, you know, be ready to go. Uh, so that kind of wraps up today's show, except for one thing I want to talk about, if you get into this uh, and you do it a lot, you're going to start getting gadgets and doodads and other things that are going to make uh, the process easier. You'll probably end up buying a hydrometer, which I didn't talk about today because it's, uh, it's not really necessary. It's a good idea, and you can read the instructions on how to use it and just use it. Uh, it'll help you calculate your own recipes if you use a hydrometer, uh, determining how heavy the beer is when you start, how heavy it is when you finish, and the difference tells you how much alcohol is basically in there. Um, but one one of the things that's really helpful is something called a wort chiller. As you might imagine, when you're done with, with boiling your wort, you have a scalding hot liquid that you really have to wait a long time for it to cool to be able to get it into your uh, glass container. Well, there's, there's two types of wort chillers. There's what's called an immersion chiller. And there is what's called a uh, pass-through chiller. An immersion chiller is basically a coil of copper. And uh, you just stick it right into your pot of hot wort. You might think, well, that would contaminate it. Well, when you stick it in there, it's still boiling. You know, you, as soon as you turn the heat off, you stick your chiller in there, you, it, it'll kill anything that's on that chiller, right? Then you hook a hose up to both sides of it. One goes to your faucet. The other hose runs back to your sink. You turn the water on. Cold water runs through the coils, all right? and helps to chill your wort faster. They work pretty decent. Uh, a pass-through chiller actually works a lot better. You take basically an old pot, anything that will hold ice and ice water, and you put a coil of copper in it. You can buy one of these or you can make one. You have an intake valve and an exit valve. You do need to sanitize that before you use it because your, your wort is actually going to pass through the copper. You fill that pot with ice water, and when you're transferring your wort to your container, you run it through the coils, and it comes out the other side greatly chilled. These work very quickly, very, very well, and you can basically just, uh, when you're done with your uh, wort, uh, transfer it almost right away, and it will be chilled to the point where it's almost ready to add yeast almost immediately. I used to have one of those. If you're going to get a word chiller, I really recommend them. A correction, too. I haven't done this in a long time, so I made a mistake. I talked about aroma hops. If you want hops to provide aroma in your beer, you don't add them at the end of the boil. You actually add them to your fermenter after your wort has chilled, and you allow them to be in there during the fermentation. Sorry about that error. I wanted to correct it at the end. One more little additive that you'll really like with your beer and mead making is called Irish Moss. It's a plant available from home, uh, you know, home brew shops. Uh, you add a little bit of this to your wort, and what it will do for you is it will help clear your wort faster and clearer, so you come up with a much clearer end result. So I hope this has kind of given you some ideas, uh, maybe made you a little bit excited about, uh, you know, maybe doing some of your own brewing and or meat or wine making. Uh, I can tell you that it's a decision that you will become deeply engrossed with. You'll get addicted to uh, to making different beers. You'll probably get involved in discussion groups about them, uh, but you won't regret it. It's a lot of fun. Uh, it adds a, a great deal of variety into your home. You can make beer for less money than you can buy it, as long as you're not trying to compare, well, how much can I get natural ladder Lone Star for, right? If you're talking about, you know, micro-brewed, high-quality beers, things like, you know, Fat Tire, Chimay, stuff like that, you're going to be much better off making your own beer uh, than buying those beers. Now, you're still going to want to try them because they're going to give you ideas for what to do next. Um, 
there's so much more I could talk about, but I really need to wrap this one up. I'm at 48 minutes today, which is longer than I planned for this podcast to be. Uh, but again, the two books by Charlie Papazian are a, a great idea to get. I'll post links to those. Uh, I'm going to publish this. I'm going to. I don't know what time I'm going to get to work today, folks. So when I get there, I'm going to publish this podcast with very brief show, show notes. So when the first time you see them, they may be brief and they may leave some things out. I'm going to go back and backfill them for you so that uh, you can get all of these resources from me, links to the books and what have you. I'm also going to start a thread in the forum I'll link to uh, on just beer recipes. I'll start another one on mead recipes. I'll put some of my favorite recipes both from uh, from sources like Charlie Papazian and some things I've come up with on my own. And if you make beer or wine or mead, I can encourage you to put your own recipes there as well. Again, though, the biggest piece of advice I can give you today is buy the right equipment, go to a shop, Ask them what you need. Don't try to shortcut that step. You'll invest about a hundred bucks to get everything you need to be making one or two batches at a time. Uh, a lot of that equipment you can then expand with just more fermenters. Don't go cheap on your fermenters. Don't try to use those plastic bottles. They put water in. They get scratches. They get contaminants in them. They ruin your your efforts. Um, so if you get good equipment, you'll be able to produce good results. And don't be afraid to experiment. Don't be afraid to try something different. Don't be afraid to just go, I wonder what that would do if I added that to mead, wine, or beer. And uh, give just about anything a try. And uh, you can probably screw it up. And then my big thing is when you buy that right equipment, you'll be able to make batches of at least five gallons. Leave the one-gallon batches alone. What's going to happen is you're going to go through all this trouble, you're going to make one gallon of some kind of a mead or a beer, and you're going to go, that's the most amazing thing I've ever made in my life. And you're going to look and you're going to only have one gallon of it. And you're going to be like, I could be, I could be, because the big thing is a lot of like the heavier beers, heavier meads, stuff with a high alcohol content ages wonderfully. And it's going to be a lot easier to lay some up to age if you, uh, if you make five gallons. One more thing. I got to throw this one in. Where do you get your bottles? Well, you can buy them or you can just start drinking the kind of beer that comes in bottles that you have to open with a bottle opener and saving all your bottles. That's where I stacked up all my bottles from before. Uh, it'll take you a few months to build them up. You might have to buy uh, enough to do one batch initially from your home brew shop. I'll be happy to save them for you. But, you know, maybe uh, once every other week go out and buy a six-pack of a beer that's made in a real bottle that has to be pried off of some new type you've never had before. Enjoy that six-pack. Take notes on it. See if you can figure out, dissect what's in it, what it was made out of. Decide whether you want to try to clone it or not. Put the bottles aside and keep doing that. In a few months, you'll have enough bottles to do two, three batches at a time. And once you start having a lot of variety and you start laying the stuff up in your pantry, uh, you'll get over the biggest problem with making beer, wine, and mead, keeping it around long enough after it's done. So the five-gallon thing, lots of variety. Don't be afraid to make multiple batches, and that will help you out. That said, the first batch you make, make one, get it completed. So do something like a brown mild, a basic brown ale, something like that you can knock out. In two to three weeks, you can be trying it before you do your second batch. That will make your life easier. You'll start to develop your own system. And buy at least one, if not both, of the books I'm going to recommend if you want to do this the right way. Charlie Papazian is the best source I know on the subject. Again, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Makes you wonder where your money went. You can scream and you can holler, it really doesn't matter because it all gets spent.